Gracious Heavenly Father, as we sing those songs and think about what it means to come to the altar with your arms open wide, knowing that we need you in every aspect of our lives, in every sphere of society, in every way imaginable as our Creator, as our Father, as our Sustainer, as our Savior, I pray that in every season, in every day, in every way possible that we strive to make manifest what that looks like. That we obviously not only depend, but seek you first. Not just first in our hearts, but seek you as not just the last resort, but the first way to approach anything in life and everything. That we need you in a way that we can't have a good day without relating with you, talking with you, being with you. Increase our reliance on your grace, on your mercy, on your love. And make us people who not only are like you, but depend on you in every single aspect of our lives. I lift up the words that are about to be spoken from your word. And once again, I pray that you speak through me or in spite of me, that you convict the hearts that you will. Now, this is glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, that we pray together. Amen. <sighs> I've said it every Sunday. 2020 is weird. And it just keeps getting weirder. Weirder and harder in some ways. And for me personally, this year has really put into focus ways that I'm lacking. Uh, I've had to come to terms with some of my spiritual habits are not the best. They could be better. It's not that I'm intentionally doing anything wrong, but at the same time, even as for some reason, I mean, whoever steps up front, I, those of you who know me know that I'm nothing special. But this year has really put some of the ways that even my relationship with God is lacking. And my Bible and my spiritual habits are lacking. And so I pray that prayer, especially coming into this sermon and this season, uh, for me, and I invite you to pray that for yourself as well. This sermon, I will admit, I have been praying about and thinking about uh, for a while now, and it came down to the fact that I actually did not want to preach it, which informed me that I probably should. So, we'll see what happens. Uh, as we know, we're in the middle of a very, not only hard year, but a very divisive one. We have had COVID, which has literally, physically divided us. Uh, we have had ethnic and racial tensions. We have had governmental tensions. We have had economic tensions and divisions. And finally, we are coming into a season which uh, all too often and in all too many ways divides even those who are among the people of God. And I want to remind us that even in this congregation, both those who are here and those who are far, we are a diverse sort. We have many backgrounds. We have many ways of looking at the world. We have different things that we place of importance in each other's lives, personal lives, social lives, family lives. But what unites us is the same. But even that 
as we know all too well, threatens to become not enough in certain seasons, and especially in years where it has been nothing but, it seems, division. And so with that, I very humbly and uh, trepidatiously offer you this sermon. This sermon is not going to talk about politics by name or by policy. The sermon is not going to talk about candidates, but it's going to talk about certain things that are true for every Christian of every other, meaning any belief past that. I realize that for some of you who are watching this from other countries or other places, the immediate application of this sermon may not be there, but also I do invite you to stick around and uh, to see where this can impact you in whatever sphere you're in, if you haven't turned me off already. So I say electing justice and unity, and as we know, <laughs> as we're all too aware, uh, these two words uh, often don't seem to go together, uh, whether people put them together and they say, no, you shouldn't, or whether they put them together and they say, oh, I don't want you to, uh, we have to admit that, especially for, obviously, those of us who are 18, this is a big deal. This is something which in our country we prize and is something which uh, is integral to our society and to the way that this country was founded. And so it is something that we need to be able to talk about. What are the three things that, uh, that they say you should never talk about at the dinner table? Religion, sex, and politics. Well, religion, you know, here we are. Um, I don't know you quite well enough to talk about sex, but I will. That may be scarier to some of you than this. And here we go with politics. The reason I bring this up is not just because of the date, but because too often this happens. Because around those who are united, around the sake of Christ, uh, we're allowed to have disagreements in many aspects about many things. But too often the realm of politics, too often the realm of these societal things, digs down and starts to divide us at the core levels of unity, meaning we start to politicize certain things which, quite honestly, should never be politicized. Meaning that we have begun to say that you are not a Christian if. That is dangerous language, brothers and sisters. And I'll show you why. When we're talking about Politics. We're talking about elections. We're talking about the way society is run. One of the things that many of us are really looking at is how things are done in this country, policies and things that are taking place in order to make society better. Now, in a word for that, a very biblical word that you could say what that is, is justice, how things are done, how things are made right or how things are made wrong, how things are taken care of. We have to realize, though, that what unites us is not greater than that which what we can disagree about. So therefore today, I want to offer you three points concerning justice, unity, and yes, indeed, that are applicable to politics. The three points are a Christian's perspective, a perspective of a Christian, and a Christian perspective. A Christian's perspective, a perspective of a Christian, and a Christian perspective. And obviously I put this up there. Who sees an old woman? Who sees a younger woman? 
Yes. Now, that's not quite the way this works, but it's an interesting segue into things that, depending on your perspective, the painting doesn't change. This one was made to be different. There are certain things which aren't. Now we're going to get into some of the nuance here. We're going to get into some of the details, and we're not going to get into too far in the details where we're going to start splitting hairs. But keep surface level. This is the 10,000-foot view of this topic. As I said a moment ago, what we're talking about really when we're talking about electoral systems or politics is we're really talking about the way societies ought to be run or the way that certain policies must uh, be instituted for the sake of, of this principle or that principle. A professor named Michael Sandel, which he re researched this, he teaches uh, political systems, and he um, has come up with three base views of a society and the views of justice. And they're pretty good, which is why I'm sharing them with you right now. The first view he comes up with is the maximizing welfare view. Welfare, not in a political sense, but welfare of those. It says that which brings the greatest amount of good and reduces the greatest amount of harm for the most people is justice in this maximizing welfare view. Another one, he says, the second one, is respecting freedom. That which creates the greatest amount of respect for rights and freedoms of the individual to live how they want. And finally is the promoting virtue. That which shapes and allows people to act as they ought in according to moral virtues. I'm not going to connect the dots explicitly about how this applies. I leave it to you. But you can see how some of these things apply, hopefully, in a society. Maximizing welfare, that which brings the greatest amount of good and reduces the greatest amount of harm. These are often things that are attributed with social programs. Unemployment would fall under this. Hey, you're down. Um, you need something, that's the good, it reduces the harm. Respecting freedom. This is a free market society, possibly, capitalism, that which lets you do what you want. This is saying that the government is very limited. Respecting the promoting virtue. This says that the government ought to be uh, based on certain principles and have certain consequences so that the people will be motivated to live virtuously. Once again, I'm not going to call out explicit parties, but I'm sure that you can say how some of these apply. So the question that we want to ask, the question that we want to do is, which one of these is biblical? You have your answer, don't you? Well, let's go through real quick right here. Because the Bible, when it comes to justice, when it comes to how to run society, has quite a bit about how to say about this. For example, in Leviticus, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and after you and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It explicitly says not given a choice to people, that you are to leave some of what you have grown and what you have, in a sense, earned for the poor and for the most vulnerable. This falls squarely under the maximizing welfare view. And some of you might say, well, this is Leviticus, it's Old Testament. There are New Testament principles in this as well. We don't have time to get into them necessarily. This is an explicit example, understand. Something else from Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As you may see, this falls squarely under the respecting freedom. People have the freedom to choose good or not, to act good or not. And finally, as you may infer, 
In Matthew 22, 36 or 39, Jesus is asked, what is the great law of the commandment? And he said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This obviously very much falls under the promoting virtue, a virtue of principle that we all must adhere to. So what I hope you see from this, and these are about three examples of numerous ones, what I hope that you see here is that when it comes to these three views, and granted we're going through the view of this professor, but I think it's an, a good one. When it comes to this is that all three of these views are found in certain places and certain applications in Scripture. How that applies today, and this is where I may start to rile some of you up, and I'm okay with that, and I just invite you to listen. How that applies today is that indeed the base principles of all the major U.S. political parties, at least, are found in Scripture. Notice what I said and what I didn't say. I said the base principles. I didn't say exact policies. I didn't say some of the extremities of a certain belief or not. I said the base principles. Doing good for the most, reducing the harm. Yet, you are free to make your own choice. Yet, there are certain things upon which we must base our lives and certain, certain things we must not. All of these, and how they apply to even the modern day political parties, are found in Scripture. Now, let's talk about a few things as a clarifying uh, bit. And this impacts our first point of Christian's perspective. Because all three of these views are found in Scripture, and these are all three views that are based on some of the major political parties of the U.S., objectively we must say that there is not a Christian political party, meaning an exclusive, this one is correct, this one is the only Christian party. Never has, never will be. In fact, we want to make the argument we are set up so that there wouldn't be, from a secular point of view, which actually I'll address in just a minute. If the base principles are found across the board, there is not a specifically Christian party. Having said that, and this is me preaching from a theological point of view, there are biblical and anti-biblical principles in each and every party. If you want to harp on one, you can harp on them all. There are nuance, there is detail. There are bigger issues in some than others. But there are both biblical and non-biblical things in every party. Therefore, the gospel must never, must, the gospel must shape your politics never the other way around. I want to repeat that four or five hundred times, but I won't. The gospel must shape your politics, whatever they are, never, never the other way around. This means a couple things. One, it means we have to have the right priorities, but then two, it, must, it means we must know the gospel, but then three, it also means that we must be able to separate political ideology from gospel, which is getting harder and harder, it seems, every day. This is what I believe is the first bit, a Christian's perspective, realizing that in a secular one second, I'll address this in just a minute. Political system, there is not one party which is the Christian one or not. Indeed, even in this congregation, 
There are people of varied political stripes which are devoted, faithful Christians, and you dare not say otherwise. I dare not say otherwise. It's not my place. The third one is the most important, I think, you can gather. The gospel must shape your politics. It must shape, I can put in here, must shape your whatever, never the other way around. This gets into, as I said three times just a matter ago, I've talked about this before, this difference between the secular versus sacred. We say, well, here is my sacred perspective, here is my theological gospel perspective, and that's good. But over here, this is a secular perspective, so I can't apply it to this because there are issues here. That's, there's a Greek word for that. It's hogwash. <laughs> Actually, a better Greek word would be baloney, but that's a whole other story. There is no difference between secular and sacred spheres of life. Either the gospel is influencing over all of it, or it might as well be influencing over none of it. Either you are a Christian first, or you might as well be not at all. Revelation addresses this. It's dangerous to separate the secular versus sacred. The Bible never does it. Jesus never does it. And you can't. If you're really taking it seriously. That's a very blunt, I will admit, Christian perspective. Something else we have to consider, though, is when we talk about others who may disagree with us in a political or otherwise sphere, let me ask you this. When it comes to these people, which one of these people is not worth sharing the gospel to? Well, she's a whatever, and he's a whatever, and she's a whatever, and she's a whatever. Which one of these people is not worth sharing the gospel to? Which one of these people is worth putting a barrier up so that they could not hear the gospel from your mouth? Or Facebook feed? Or Twitter account? That's what we're doing when we put anything above the gospel is that we are saying this issue whatever it is is more important than I am right about that I am justified about that I am heard about and Jesus that was a very southern way of saying Jesus right now then wasn't it Jesus I was in Texas for three years Gail so that's probably it second point the perspective of a Christian I want to put back up just real quick here. I'm a different group of people, granted. The first group of people I asked, which one of these people are not worth sharing the gospel to? This group of people, however, maybe is looking at you. What do they see when they look at you? What do they see when they look at us? What do they see when they look at our church? What do they see when they look at anything that comes from us or our church or our congregation? In John 18, starting in verse 33, 
It reads, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I am, a, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, Do you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now this is a passage which we know quite well, and a lot of things harp on this verse in conjunction with the last little bit of that. My kingdom is not of this world. This has been taken in recent history, as a matter of fact, to say that the kingdom of God is not a part of this world, or is not of this world, meaning that heaven and earth are different, that are, are, they're apart, they're separate, and so therefore what happens on earth doesn't necessarily impact the, hev the heavenly realm, and we just need to kind of get through the earthly realm so that we can get to the heavenly realm. In a sense, it's saying that while maybe it started together, it's a house now divided, and then that the heavenly realm is, is separate, the secular realm is separate, and Jesus is saying, my kingdom's not, you know, it doesn't matter here. Obviously, I think we know that's false. What he's really saying here goes back to... Let me see if I can go back here without messing this up. Ah! What he's really saying... From the world. He is saying that the source of the kingdom that Jesus, he himself, is over, the source of it is not from this world, is not from this realm, but it's from another realm. In essence, you want to think of it like this. The same lake... This is the world being fed by two streams... On one hand, we have the stream of earthly powers, authorities, greed, power, kings, presidents, even what you want to say, and the way that the world does things. On the other hand, we have God's space, heavenly realm. They're all flowing into the same thing, but Jesus is saying that his kingdom is powered, is sourced, is from a whole different way of doing things than the world has come up with. He's not saying that the kingdom of God is not meant for this world, but he's saying the kingdom of God is different than this world. The source of everything that Jesus is king of does not come from this world, and what comes from this world is sin and greed and power and strife and troubles. We know this because Jesus basically said, we're going to do power, we're going to do kingship, we're going to do everything completely opposite way. While kings on earth rejoice in having power and great majesty and great wealth and great influence, Jesus, born in a major, king of the Jews, died on a cross, that, Jesus says, is true power and authority. The complete opposite way. The question before all of us, obviously, is from which source is the kingdom we serve? It is easy. And I'm not... Okay, let me, let me just clarify something right here. I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't be involved in any sphere of life. I'm not saying that. If you have that, if you have that, that, that desire, if you have that, that gift, do it. 
I'm not saying that. I, there, are people, I'm, there are people, respected Christians, who say that we should be non-players in government. There are people who say we should be in them. I, I, I admit I kind of vacillate back and forth depending on the day. I tend to believe at this point, this is me speaking, not I, but, you know, the Lord, not, not the Lord, but I. Be involved. I don't want a government that's bereft of Christian influence by any means. So if you want to be involved, be involved. If you don't want to be involved, then don't be involved. I'm not talking about necessarily that. I'm talking about what you bring to the table from where you bring it to. Are you wrapped up, are we wrapped up in the earthly, worldly ways of doing power and authority and justice and mercy and grace? Or are we joining Jesus in the source that is not from this world, but from God? In essence, what I'm asking is this question. Should people be able to tell your political affiliation or your heavenly citizenship first? In whatever way that they encounter you. I'm not saying don't ever reveal your thoughts. I have my thoughts, so do you. What can they tell first? And does it get in the way of bringing them the gospel? Some people may say, well, it's not my fault how I'm, how I'm seen or interpreted. Frank's been teaching that you are responsible for what your words say and what your actions do. What do they see first? The passage that Frank read, I'll read again. From Mark 12, moving on to our third point. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians Jesus to catch him in his words. And they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? I know we all wish that he would have said, Nope, don't pay, and April 15th would be the best day of Christian disobedience ever. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He said, bring me Daenerys, let me look at it. They brought to him the coin, and he asked, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, real quick, I actually want to look at the possible coin that Jesus was handed. This is uh, Daenerys with Tiberius on it. Is Thomas Wood here today? I didn't see. I don't think he is. I was debating whether I was going to pronounce the Latin. If he was here, I definitely was going to pronounce Latin. Since he's not here, I still won't because I don't want to massacre it, but that's a whole other story. This is possibly the coin that Jesus was handed. On the back, it says Pontiff Maxim, which is short for Pontificus Maximus, which is basically saying that Caesar, the image on here, is the high priest of Rome. On the other side, and this is the one I'm not going to pronounce because it's quite longer and involved, it in essence says that Tiberius, the image bearer, is the son of Augustus and Caesar, the divine son of the divine emperor Augustus Caesar. When Jesus was handed a coin 
with an image on it, he was handed, if you want to connect some of these dots, a graven image of a god who while at Jesus' time, the actual worship of Caesar as a, as a god on earth wasn't quite as formal as it would become, Caesar was still thought and taught and preached as the divine one on earth, the high priest, the one who would intersect between the gods and man. So I want you to see something here. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what Caesar and give to gods what gods, He's actually making actually a very interface political statement. Not only to the Pharisees and Sadducees who had become wrapped up in the political financial systems where they were trying to buy off room and trying to do their thing, but he was making a societal political statement by saying, Caesar, who you think he is, the leader, he's not. Give to Caesar whatever he is, but give to God what's God's. He was in essence denouncing the image and divineship of who Caesar was. The second thing, though, he did is that he brought up an implied question. And I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. The logical question, get back to Caesar, what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's? The logical question is, well, what is God's if this is Caesar's? The logical answer then, going back to Genesis 2 and 3, is whose image is on you? And what are you giving Caesar that should be God's? And maybe what are you giving God's? Maybe Caesar's. Brothers and sisters, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or politics or society or anything else. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, these are things of which we're allowed to disagree upon, disputable matters. Actually, the word for these, that word is dialogamos, which is the base word for dialogue, as a matter of fact, something that we don't do very well. So whatever you believe about these disputable matters, these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Whatever his doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong, it doesn't mean those who are right. It doesn't mean those who are louder. It doesn't say those. It's those who are strong in faith, meaning that our faith in who God is and our relationship with him is strong. Let us bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, for it is written, The insults of who insult you have fallen on me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Do you ever think about how maybe this applies to Christian to Christian as well? When Christians insult each other, they are definitely insulting Christ. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope. 
May the God, maybe this should be our prayer for the next few days, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then as just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. What qualifications were put in there about not accepting one another, not bearing with one another? Yes, even enduring with one another outside of those who share the faith in Christ? What qualifications were made to call each other out and to uh, exclude one another or to call each other, question each other's faith? Obviously none. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. What attitude was that from Philippians 2? That he of himself, he served others, emptied himself for the sake of those around him. Brothers and sisters, obviously I think that we can infer some things here. And I've been pretty blunt, but this is what it really matters. Especially in these seasons, especially in this time, especially in this year of division, especially in this year, as we come to this part of the service Week after week, week after week, we must be mindful of what it means. It means, quite frankly and quite simply, that if you are welcome at the Lord's table as those who believe in Jesus Christ, who have been baptized for the forgiveness of sins, who see Jesus and who know him as King and Messiah, whomever is welcome at the Lord's table should feel welcome at your table. Can you disagree on things? Absolutely. In fact, it's good that we do. Never to the exclusion, though, of not being at each other's table with each other. Christianity was arguably, and maybe not even arguably, the first time that Jew and Greek, Roman, woman, prostitute, politician, sinner, Pharisee, that all sit at the same table under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not die for a party, for a candidate, for a political system, for a country or any of the details in between. He died that the church, the ecclesia, the body of those who proclaim his name ought to be redeemed, reflect who God is into the world and spread his kingdom. I've been blunt. I'm not that sorry about it. And I preach this, not speaking to anyone or any person in particular, but as a reminder of certain things, that our source of power and authority and grace and mercy must always be in Christ. That yes, we can be involved and we should be involved in the things going around and around us, but never to the exclusion of those who differ in principle and ideal, but yet share the same Lord and baptism and faith. And especially coming into this moment of the service after this next two songs. Remember, 
people that we share this table with are not the same in political affiliation, in background, in principle, in a few other ways. They are your brothers and sisters. Even in these times, reflect that. Let us reflect that to the world, that especially in this time of so much strife and stuff going on, the world needs to see the example of what it means to say, I disagree with you. Come share my table. Come share the bread. As we share the Lord and faith in our lives. Let us be the body that every day elects the holistic justice that we can influence and above all unity in Christ not just on election day Heavenly Father do what you will do what you will with the things around us do what you will with Tuesday but above all do what you say you will do in our hearts transform us and make us like you able to rise above the systems of the world, the powers and principalities that threaten to divide us and make us one temple, make us one body, make us like your son. We are all redeemed in your blood. We are all forgiven from our trespasses and we are all filled with the Holy Spirit. We are all redeemed in eternal life. And yes, what that looks like, how we choose to manifest that in other ways, may be different. But God, from this day, this day on, this day forward, never let us forget that we are more unified than divided because your Son has overcome everything and anything that could divide us. Let that be our legacy to the world this week. In Jesus' name, amen.